Hello, and welcome to Anything But Traditional. I'm your host, Marvin Svee, and I'm so happy that you are here today to listen to this week's episode with my neighbor, Avi Diffic. One of the challenges that is often talked about, but maybe not in the best way, is this shidduch crisis. Or, in other words, people that are struggling to get married. This swamp in Katamon. Now, these are some derogatory terms, but being single in the Jewish Orthodox world, as you get older, is not easy. As Avi explains, he saw his friends get married, saw them have kids. He grew up just like them. He went to Frisch. He went to BMT. He went to YU, got smicha. It was pretty standard, but he wasn't able to get married when everyone else was. and. He went on a little bit of a different path. He went on a different path career-wise, and he went on a different path dating-wise. Thankfully, today, he's married to an incredible woman. He has four beautiful children. He works as a massage therapist and a physical trainer. Avi has worked hard. He's grown tremendously over his years. And there's a lot that I think many can relate to with this episode. So sit back, relax, listen in, and think about how we, how the Jewish Orthodox community can treat those that are struggling to get married, those that maybe don't have the answers as to why they're not getting married, or maybe they know why and it's just challenging. Let's figure out ways to be more open, more accepting, more loving in a real and genuine way. Thank you, Avi, for sharing your story. Hello, everybody. I'm here with Avi Dizek, uh, my neighbor in your Mabe Shemesh, and I'm so excited that he's here today to tell his story. Avi, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Where did you grow up, and what was your family like? So I was born 1973, 50 years ago, and I grew up in a Riverdale section of the Bronx in New York City. It's part of the five boroughs by two blocks. We're inside of the city limits where we live three blocks, and I grew up in a modern Orthodox home, pretty traditional modern Orthodox. I uh, went to B'nai Kiva camps, went to the local day school, SAR Academy. My sister-in-law went there, so we know a bit about it. <laughs> I mean, not in your day. She's younger than me, but um, yeah, she went there. <laughs> yeah, SAR Academy, it's a very strong school. Even to this day, they added a high school, but that was after after my time. It was a very Zionistic school, a very Zionistic upbringing. In terms of B'nai Kiva camps, the principles of SAR, I see uh, from time to time roaming around Yerushalayim where they made Aliyah, at least three in a row, three principles they made Aliyah. They would work for 10 years as principal, approximately, and then make Aliyah. So it was a very Zionistic. Israel was always in the forefront in shul. We had a Zionistic shul under the leadership of Rabbi Avi Weiss. And we had B'nai Kiva groups, and we went to Mosheva. Not everyone, but that was my upbringing. Cool. Did you have any siblings? I have two younger sisters. I'm the oldest. No brothers. Very nice. And where are they living these days? So my sister, who's three years younger than me, lives in Manhattan. She lives in the in the southern part of Harlem, cool. near the top of Central Park. And then my other sister made Aliyah even before me, and she lives in Modi'in, 
both of them are married with children. Wow, beautiful, beautiful. That's awesome. Yeah. And your parents are still in the States or your parents are in Israel? My parents uh, live in the same house since 1979 in Riverdale. Wow. So they visit a lot. But they have a house in Riverdale, so that's nice. Yeah, they have a house since 1979. They own an apartment now in Yerushalayim as well. They come to visit at least twice a year, sometimes more. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. In terms of you, so you went to SAR, you went to Mosheva. Where did you go to high school? Because you only, you said that SAR was only an elementary school, not a high school. All right, so for high school, the obvious choice was, uh, was it's called MTA, or uh, officially it's YU High School. But in any case, uh, I wanted to go to Frisch. I wanted to be in a more modern place, more co-ed. No school on Sunday. None of that stuff made sense to me. They also finished school like at 6.30. While Frisch finished at 10 after 5, it was plenty. And uh, back then, there wasn't that much traffic there. and We were able to get to school in like under 25 minutes on the van. We had, a lot of kids came over from Riverdale. So that was a popular choice after MTA. So that's where I went. So they told us at Frisch and... My parents are, are strictly Shomer Shabbos. You know, the other stuff we're much more modern about in terms of music and mixed swimming and all that stuff we, we had in the house. My father loves opera and all kinds of uh, Broadway shows. You know, we grew up on that stuff. But when it came to Shabbat, we were strictly Shomer Shabbat, at least what we knew. And at first, they told us most of the kids would be Shomer Shabbat. We got there and it was not the case. Most of the kids were not Shomer Shabbat. And it was the decision by the school to have a freshman Shabbat retreat in the beginning of the year. It was a stupid decision to have this in September when the kids were coming from public school. So radios were on, televisions were on, things like that. So when my father asked me about it, I was a little naive, 14-year-old, and I said, yeah, people were watching the ball game, listening to music. And he was, what? They didn't say that was the case. This is an Orthodox school. Even if they're not Orthodox kids, they should be strict. To make a long story short, my father threatened to tell the school and I felt very uneasy in the school and, and, and somebody else told on this kid oh. and he was he was reprimanded right. and they thought I told on the kid and I was just like hiding out. I'm just it was not a great uh it was not a great start. So also I also didn't grow um very much until later on. So I was like this four ten kid, freshman, tiny, tiny kid. So I feel like you're so tall. No, I'm normal height now, five nine. But back then five nine is tall. <laughs> It depends. It's all about. <laughs> I mean, Giddy's five five, so yeah. definitely taller than Giddy, and I'm five feet, so definitely taller than me too. <laughs> no, but coming at four ten, my voice hadn't changed. I was, you know, it was easy to bully me. You know, you have ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth grade all together in the same uh, building. The kid who was watching apparently had brothers and friends in the twelfth grade, and it wasn't pleasant. The principal had to reassure me. Was Frisch me. as big of a school then? It was pretty big. We had about 100, I would say about 110 to 115 kids in each class. Oh, wow. That's big. No, no, no. They got much bigger after. They, they, they got closer to 200 a class, I think. Crazy. I did not know that so many people went to Frisch. I mean, I knew that people went there. I just didn't know how many. So, okay. So you went to SAR, you went to Frisch, and then did you go to Yeshiva? So the year in Israel was a big turning point because that was always, I was always interested in doing. And even though many of the kids in Frisch did not do that, I was very interested in going. And luckily I made a very good choice with the help from my rabbi, Avi Weiss, and I went to BMT. I was not a candidate for a Hezdu Yeshiva. BMT was a perfect fit. BMT is now Torah Shraga, right? BMT folded and the rabbis went in all different directions. But our rabbis now are from, from BMT in the early 90s are the leaders 
of the big yeshivas here in Israel, of some of the big one-year programs. For example, Boaz Mori, the Rosh Yeshiva Leva yeah, Torah, was one of my dorm counselors. Another one of my dorm counselors was Rabbi Eli Marcus, who helps to run Reshit, right? And some of the teachers that we had, like Rabbi Machlis and Rav Shammai, also teach at Leva Torah. Wow. So it's not the exact same Hashkafa. Leva Torah is not that different, I think, than the BMT that I went to. Shraga is different, but not Leib. It's more like similarly. Shraga is very different. Shraga was physically in the same location, but it was a totally different type of place. Yeah, because Giddy went to Shraga, and so he, he talks about BMT being in the exact same place that Shraga is and whatever, but I guess... <laughs> Leva Torah, I think, would be the closest. I mean, my cousin, who became Haredi, my first cousin, who grew up in New Jersey and went to Frisch because MTA didn't work out for him, ended up becoming a Rebbe in Torah Shraga. I'm sure your husband knows him, Judah Goldschmidt. Oh, Rebbe Goldschmidt. Yeah, but his Hashkafa was not... Uh, the BMT, we had a lot of Zionistic rabbis, a lot. So, also, was uh, Rev Benny? Uh, Benny, yeah. Benny Eisner. Yeah, yeah he yeah. was huge there. I was very close with him. Giddy's obsessed with Rev Benny Eisner. Like, he talks about him all the time. <laughs> I was I was very close with it. Yeah, so BMT definitely shifted my direction. The point there is I kind of separated a bit from my high school friends. And when I came to YU, I got in a little bit more with the firmer crowd, let's say. Okay. And what was that like? So a big uh, turning point that I, I mentioned about in this journey was that I went for half of Shana Bet. Just long story short, I was there for half of Shana Bet. And they have the YU Cola. I think to this day, they still have it there. And the Kolo guys are like, you're going to go to YU. you got to focus on your learning. You won't have time to socialize or do anything like that. Focus on your learning. Don't go to Stern. Don't go to Columbia, Barnard, none of that stuff. You mean grocery? And, uh, yeah. yeah. So these guys, there was a guy who said that to me. And when I came back to YU, I lived, you know, Yeshiva University is three miles from my parents' house, maybe four. It's a, it's a short drive. So I went home for Shabbos, and I didn't have much of a social life. So from being in a co-ed school... Now, I was basically just with the guys, you know. I didn't have any uh, inclination to become ultra-Orthodox, but at the same time, I was still kind of hanging out with guys, which what it did was it put me into the shidduch scene, meaning that I wasn't going to meet someone on my own. I was going to start going through um, setups and shidduchim that way. So when did you start dating? That's how it was done. So because I was a bit of a shy, nervous kid, I delayed it as much as possible. There were a couple of ways that why you guys would meet uh, would meet women in uh, more halakhically appropriate ways. One of them was the uh, through the special needs, right? Even if they didn't go to the past camp, they still had lots of activities during the year. And it's a great chesed. It's fantastic. That chesed doesn't speak to me, but it's great. And I actually have done some work in that field as well, but that's again for another time. Um, the other one was NCSY, and NCSY wasn't anything in Riverdale. It was big in New Jersey. I went, and I couldn't break in to the group in New Jersey to try it. In New England, they were a little bit better, a little nicer. But long story short, I didn't really have much of a social life, at least with, with women. I had guy friends plenty. So um, after I finished YU, I went back to Israel to be a dorm counselor at BMT. And I had a very nice year there, but again, no dating. And then when I came back to YU, I was, uh, for Smich, I was 23, I guess, 1996. Then they started uh, with the Shiduchim, and they started setting me up. But by then, I was a little bit later in the game. And I remember the first couple of dates that I had were with women that had been out many, many times. And it was a bit, uh, let's just say, challenging. 
For sure. So what were your first dates like? The first date that I had, I won't forget it. It was very filled with drama. I remember the woman was also 23. And they said that she had been dating from the minute she got back from her seminary year, which at that point was four years. And she had been at Michlala, which we weren't even BMT Michlala. We're not allowed to mix at the bus stop. We were <laughs> next door to them physically. But hashkafically, we were far away from them. In any case, I got sick with the flu and I had to cancel the date. Second date comes. I go out to Teaneck, which is not far. And I'm all dressed up. My first date nervous. me. She opens the door. She's like, I think I have to cancel the date. She's all dressed up, ready to go to a wedding. I'm like, why do you have to cancel the date? I noticed she's talking funny. She's like, I just came from the dentist. He said it was a regular checkup. He ended up giving me Novocaine. My mouth is numb. Oh, man. I said, I said to her, I'm not going to force you to go on a date with her mouth is numb. She's like, I didn't want to cancel on you. I said, it's okay. <laughs> so finally, finally, whatever it was, a week or two later, we finally went out. And it was a very uh, poorly planned date because I took the car to Manhattan. And she said I went through some red lights. I wasn't driving in Manhattan in those days. I went to a sports bar and I liked sports. So it wasn't well planned because I had to try to stay away from the television and not watch the games. <laughs> but the part that was strange for me is that it was, it was one date and out. That's how it worked. And as someone who grew up in a social environment, I found that to be very abrupt. And they explained to me, no, she's been on so many dates. She knows she probably did. Probably wasn't a right match. But the abruptness of it, and when it happened two or three times, I think made an impression on me that uh, this was going to be a tough road, at least for me. Got it. That so, makes sense? Like, so you started dating at 23, right? And then you continued dating, but you also made Aliyah at some point? No, no, no. I made Aliyah only at 33. I was in New York for 10 years at that point straight. Oh, wow. You were in New York for 10 years straight. So... Yeah. Roughly how many new people did you meet in those 10 years? So at the beginning, I was being set up on a, de a decent amount, and I started keeping track. But once it got above 50 or 60, I didn't think it was a good idea. I wasn't trying to set records with how many I got set up with. <laughs> so I stopped counting. Plus, I changed my approach as the years went on. So I don't even know if I got to 100. I'd like to think I didn't. So that's a very interesting point. Like, what was your approach in the beginning? And what, then what was your approach? Like, how did it change? So I would say my approach was a bit immature because I was, I was being rejected very quickly on the first two or three dates. And the next couple of dates, I started rejecting very quickly. And that was a bad habit that I got into that even happened on the first date with my wife, where I wasn't sure one way or another. The recommendation is to go out again. And I didn't. So you said no to Karen from the beginning. Um, after the first date, I was like, I can go either way. The Shad Khan person said she can go either way. And I said, OK, just leave it. Wow. Crazy. Yeah. So, okay. So we're going to get back to that soon because that's... That was 10 years later. That was at the end of 2006. If you're following the chronology. Okay. So did you have any like serious relationships for those first 10 years of dating? That's a very good question. So for the first few years, nothing at all. Nothing at all. Then I think I was... A about 27. It was about four years. And then finally, it looked like something was going to go with this woman that I was interested in and was kind of the way the games work when you're dating, let's say, people uh, who you meet. So it's like I was interested in her a little bit. She was not interested in me. And then it flipped and the relationship didn't go too far. I pushed myself to give it a shot. By then, my YU friends were basically all married and already having kids sure? by 27. Um, my high school friends, not as much, but that was more my, my crowd already by that point. And um, after that, I met another woman and we went out for a couple of months and uh, it was finally a connection. And then finally, when we realized 
we didn't have much in common. It, it was just like, I was just trying to get into a relationship just to experience oh, it at that point. Wow. That must have been really hard. That was really hard because I also was um, struggling in my job. As a teacher. So I was a teacher for three years and I didn't control the classes that well or well at all. So I was bouncing from job to job, trying my best. And kind of at that point, uh, both things came, came kind of crashing down. So I went out with this other woman maybe for a month and this one that was a little bit more of a connection of maybe two and a half months or so. How was being a teacher at that time? Because you said that it was like falling apart. I loved it and I hated it at the same time. Yeah, I loved it and I hated it. So I loved uh, teaching. I loved getting up in front of the class. I loved entertaining. I loved explaining stuff. I taught Gamara, but I was only successful at the sports. Where part. did you teach? After school, we did the sports. I did the sports teams, and that went well. That's not enough. <laughs> I taught one year at Westchester Hebrew High School, and then a year and a half at Joseph Kushner. Oh, you taught at Kushner? Yeah, Kershaw. What's his name? Max Kershenbloom's brother remembered me. Oh, Arye, Arye Kershenbloom. Yeah, I was there in that time. Oh, so funny. So I'm, I, I'm from West Orange. Ah. So my siblings went to Kushner. So that's so funny. So basically, so you were dating for a while. You changed your approach. You were figuring things out with your job. And then you made Aliyah. No, we got to go back to one big turning point. Yeah. There's one big turning point. <laughs> so uh, I don't remember the exact chronology, but I think it was about a year after. So let's say, talking about the end of 2000, when all this ended, maybe it was the end of 2001, early 2002, somewhere around there. I went, I was always open. I'm about a self-growth type of person, always trying to improve myself. It's always been my, my MO, at least as far back as I can remember and as an adult. And they had this workshop in Queens. And, you know, there was a slot for men, a slot for women, whatever. I was open. And we get there and this, this Haredi guy comes in. He's a therapist. And I hadn't been doing this stuff at the time. I want everyone to close their eyes. We're going to do a meditation. I was like, what? I thought he was going to explain to us about that. No, no, no. Close your eyes. And I want you to imagine that you're at your wedding and you're surrounded by your best friends. And I remember that moment, one of the guys spoke up and said, what is this? I, was, I thought I was going to picture my wife at the wedding. What am I surrounded by my best friends? And they had this argument back and forth. But he made a profound uh, point to me at that point. He's like, listen, because you start to give up. You're like 27 at the time, 28 maybe now. And, and he made a very profound point. He's like, wait a second. If you have friends of any kind, we can build the skills that you have from your friendships to finding a spouse. Sounds like a pretty obvious point maybe. But to me, it was like, ah, oh, that can give me some hope because I had plenty of friends. And this guy's like, I want friends. I want a wife. And he didn't get the whole point, but I got it. Wow. So, so I mean, let's go back to your friends, right? You said that most of your YU friends were married, having kids, all of that. What was that like to feel left behind, like not at that same stage of life as everyone else? So at that point, I had an option to to have a good social life and I took it on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Okay, there was no more Washington Heights at that point for me. There was no more living at home. I had to go down to the Upper West Side where you could be Orthodox at least in your late 20s. You could go to shul, you keep kosher, you keep Shabbos, you can socialize and be Orthodox. And because I'd gone to all the B'nai Kiva camps and you know I had met other people through Frisch playing basketball with other people I had, I was able to make connections there and able to create a social life there away from these married friends. Yeah, I'd go to Teaneck for Shabbos sometimes. But for the most part, I had a social life there. 
in those years. That, to me, saved me. People disparage the Upper West Side, and there are lots of negative things you can say about it. But for me, it was a savior. It was an absolute savior to have that during those years. So were you as religious, like, especially with your job of being a Rebbe, not doing as well as you'd like, like, were you as religious as you were back when you were Rebbe and you were younger? It's a very good question. There's no question I wasn't as religious, but uh, from what I was saying before, the Upper West Side kept me at least in. It kept me in the basics that I had right. grown up with, Shabbos and kosher and some shirim and things like that. That Without that, I don't know if I would be able to hold on. But I wow. think you know, there were certain Shabbat meals or yuntif meals where people had television on and things like that. And I even had some high school friends that I would stop by sometimes and they would have the television on or things. But I didn't go to them often uh, for Shabbos at least. And I was able to, for the most part, with, withstand that temptation because I had this nice social life. And on Sunday, we'd play basketball or softball or hang out with, with the guys from Shabbos, with the single guys. And we had our, you know, our lifestyle. You know, it was a little bit firmer than Friends or Seinfeld or anything like that. But a little bit, you get wow. the idea. That's awesome. Yeah, well, also my stepdad got married at 32, like right before he turned 33. And he was saying that, like, yeah, like, he had a whole social scene. He was uh, in the village, um, and he had a very, very big social scene. And it's incredible because, yeah, we think of these places and we don't, like, you know, but I got married at 23, and, um, you know, I felt very young at the time, and now I don't feel so young. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, when I got married at 23, I... I had no idea what it was like to be single. I had no idea about the single life. I had no idea about, like, I never went, I never lived in the Heights or the Upper West Side or with my parents. Like, I went from college to be married, and that was it. Um, We actually, you know, a fun fact about us is that we got married before at least most of your friends, probably more than half of the couples in this community. I believe that. So that's always been interesting, you know. I'll be like, Oh, when did you guys get married? Oh, 2018. Oh, yeah, you have three kids. That's great. <laughs> um, <laughs> because in that sense, we do feel very, like, left behind. Right, you have that other challenge. Um, you have the other challenge, yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, so you were in the Upper West Side, and you were there. How long were you in the Upper West Side for? How many years did you live there? I moved in 2000. I'd say in the late 90s, I was still living by YU in the Heights. I lived at home for uh, about a year, let's say, 99, and then in 2000, I moved to the Upper West Side until I made Aliyah in 2006. So six plus years I was there. So what inspired you to make Aliyah? So that's the thing. I was always inspired to make Aliyah. When I got to YU, I was like, this is probably a mistake. I probably belong in Israel. And even after I was a dorm counselor, I thought about staying. But by then, um, I thought that I could have a better impact in Jewish education in New York at that point. And I thought I'd have a better chance of finding a wife there. Things didn't work out exactly as planned, but they did work out, thank God. So I always had that inside. And then in 2002, I think it was, my sister made a successful Aliyah right after her college years. And she was pushing me to come. And from 2001 to 2006, I was doing odd jobs. I was just doing whatever it took to get by. I would deliver um, wow. food from a kosher store on Friday, do Hebrew school Sunday and Wednesday, coach the basketball teams. Whatever it took, I was hustling, basically to get by and it was like time to find something a little bit more stable so you were very much floundering i was very much floundering in, in all ways but 
if we want to stick to the the dating perspective, it was this uh, workshop. I wait. I waited. Now this is how most people act. I wasn't like, wow, this guy can help me, whatever. I waited maybe a year. Yeah. And a year later, I was going out with this girl that at least I was getting more confidence. I asked her out. We went on a few dates. And it wasn't going anywhere. And she lived in uh, Long Island or something. I was driving an hour each way. I was getting frustrated. And I said, you know what? Let me find it. It was already the days of the internet. Um, let me find this guy. Maybe he can help me. I sent him a message. And he says, come meet me in my office. And he explained to me his philosophy of dating. He said he was going to work with me to help me get married. So for the next couple of months or a year, whatever it was, he would coach me. I would get set up with dates or meet girls. And he would help coach me so that I would do better and uh, eventually I got into a relationship, I think it was in 2004, with another woman that I thought I would marry, and it didn't work out. We both think it was good for the best that we didn't marry each other. But it was 2004. Let's do the math. It was 31. But, like, you got... I was close. I was close. You got close to getting engaged. That time, I was close to getting engaged. I felt it was a long-distance relationship, so that made it a little bit more challenging. She would visit New York a couple of times, then I went out to visit her in Seattle. And that visit, I thought... If it went well, we would be able to uh, to close the deal. I really thought uh, that it would work out. But each step of the way, and he explained to me, each step of the way as you get closer and closer and closer, more challenges come up. Uh, so again, if you get married young, you might not even realize these challenges. It's just boom, right through. But when you get older, these challenges, like I never experienced this before. It's like it's new. It's like, oh, what do I do here? So those challenges uh, came up. But at the same time, I felt like I was at least able to accomplish a healthy relationship with someone that I thought was a good person. And on paper, we were a good match. Just in person, it just it didn't go. Can you give me an example of something that would come up um, that weren't, you know, necessarily if you're younger, but when you're older? Like, do you mind giving an example of what you're talking about? All right. So that's a good question as well. So basically what happens is, is uh, I'm sure you've heard this one, when someone is single, um, and especially when they're an adult, they don't have to answer to anybody else. Yes, they have friends, but they're not in this. They have roommates. And sometimes you get into a little bit with a roommate, but the expectations between two roommates, guys, is so low compared now that I'm married 12 years, 12 and a half, right? Their expectations are so low. When you're married to someone or even when you're considering marrying someone, the expectations of the other person and how they're going to behave and how they're going to act go up, right? And I wasn't able to meet those expectations right away because I wasn't used to it. Whether it was being thoughtful, whether it was what to say, whether it was time to buy a gift, whether it was to buy a card, whether it was whatever it was, if I entered someone else's space to make sure that I was tidy and clean, which is a big challenge for me personally. I hear. No, I hear. When you're used to it all the time, from the time you're in your parents' house to the time you're in your spouse's house, maybe it's a lot easier. But when you're living on your own, you throw stuff wherever and you do stuff wherever and you, you eat out of the cans. And, you know, it, it these challenges needed to be navigated. For sure. For sure. So how did Karen navigate it better? So uh, Karen has some of the same personality things as I do. So we didn't step on each other's toes as badly. As someone who was like more right. of a neat freak and someone who was more, you know, organized and someone. Not that Karen is not neat and not organized, but <laughs> she can tolerate it at least better than. She's the best. Better than some other people, let's say. She's really the best. You know, it also takes the personality of being low key and low maintenance and, right. you know, kind of figuring out your system. Like, I know that people always ask me 
on Instagram, like, marriage advice, and I'm always like, honestly, the biggest piece of marriage advice is don't look. <laughs> just don't look. Just be like, okay. No, there's certain people that have a very high level of cleanliness. I think I think it's, it's not the only thing, but it's a piece. It's a significant piece that can't be overlooked. Well, like, Gideon and I both have high levels of cleanliness, but, like, it will take him triple the amount of time to do the dishes as it would right. take me. And I'm like, right. just do the dishes. But, like, in the, right. in the end of the day, like, I'd rather him do the dishes on his own pace, in his own way, in his own time. Right. And then he does the dishes, you know? Like, you don't have to be, you just don't have to get frustrated. And I feel like sometimes marriage leads to this frustration, but it doesn't have to. There's a lot of times that, you right. know, if you just, like, look the other way and just kind of like, okay, he's going to be slower than you, and that is okay. Right, but the point I would make in terms of singles is that once you're married, you've made that commitment. You're not going to break up with yeah. a person because they didn't do the dishes the right way. When you're dating, anything like that, and it could be over. It could be over, yeah. and that's also more anxious. Not that you would break up with someone over the dishes, but anything, and boom, you're done. You walk away and it's over, right? You never see that person. There's no strength. There's nothing. When you're married, you're going to commit to stay, at least unless you can, you know, unless someone does really horrible things, but you're going to stay over little things. You're not going to leave. I hear that. No, I definitely, I definitely hear that. And I definitely hear how also if we were later on in our life, it might've been different. Like when I was dating him, he was in the BMT building, you know, he was in uh, Torishraga. Um, and I didn't see how he lived in his apartment. He didn't have an apartment. He was in the Shraga building, you know, working for Shraga. Like, it's very different. Um, so, yeah, and if we would have grown up and, you know, lived separately and met at 28, 29, I don't know. It would it, Yeah, I really hear that. So what happened when your relationship didn't work out with that woman? So it was a bit complicated because what happens is, is that it's still very hard to just break up and move on. So uh, we see each other in shul. That's part of the problem of the Upper West Side happened to some of my friends as well. You just kind of, you break up, but you don't move on. You're just kind of stuck somewhere in the middle. So I would have a few months where we wouldn't be in touch, then we'd reconnect, and it was, uh, it was kind of an on and off thing for about two years. So... Uh, being that this was holding me back and the fact that I wasn't working was holding me back. I just, I needed a big change. I needed a big change. I was either going to move home or I was going to move to Israel. I just, I needed to start fresh, so. And you decided to move to Israel. Yeah, so, right, because at that point, I wasn't going to hustle anymore. I felt like I had to go study. And I didn't want to live back at home. I could have lived at home. Uh, but I wanted a fresh start. I figured I'd start in Israel. Uh and I'd study here. They told me I would get I got a lot of subsidies. I got most of the courses uh, paid for, or they weren't expensive, and that was and that was really good. What I underestimated is I had to rebuild up the social life again from scratch. Yes, I had the skills to do it, but the rebuild was was rough that first year. What courses were you taking? So when I got here, they told me you can't study, uh, you can't uh, get money to take a. Uh, class in college uh, like, to get another degree uh, if you're above a certain age. But to take courses like massage training, things like that, you could get a subsidy. So they paid, I think, two-thirds of the course. 
Is that why you picked massage and physical training? I was between the two, so I ended up doing both. Nice. But were you thinking about going into other fields or you were like, this is it, like massage and physical training is exactly what my calling? It's a good question. I think always I doubted myself, especially in those years when I was still single. I didn't have as much confidence. Um, I kind of had it narrowed down towards those two things because I didn't see myself going back to a long program of schooling. And I didn't see myself doing total blue collar work. So I thought this was a good compromise to be physically active. That's something that I could study and hopefully make a decent living at, right? And be able to do it in a relatively short period of time, not to study for four years. Got it. So, okay. So you're in Israel, you're taking your courses, um, and you are continuing to date in Israel. Yeah. So what happened there is that, again, I had to go back. I had to go back to the Shadchanim. Because no one knew me in Israel, not no one, but almost no one. Yeah, there were some YU guys who had turned up that I remembered from the 10 years earlier, from the dorms, <laughs> right? And there were a couple of guys here and there, but it was all from scratch. So I went to Shadchanim and they would set me up. And then one of them set me up with my wife and we went on one date. Uh, but that was that. That was it. I was still truthfully getting my feet wet. I've been like studying massage for maybe a month at that time. Uh, I was in Opan. I was very fresh. Wait, so you met your wife when you were 33. So over the years in Katamo, in the single scene, I developed a, a social life and a social scene. I re, kind of recreated it, uh, that, 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 the one that I had in, uh, in the Upper West Side. I became a bit of a leader. We had Facebook back in those days already. And we had Facebook groups and Facebook uh, Shabbat meals, who's looking for a Shabbat meal, and Facebook Sudashli sheet groups and all these kind of things. So, well... Like, did you go away for Shabbos a lot or you were mostly in Katamon? It, it was very similar. I would say it was very similar to the Upper West Side. I was mostly in Katamon because I wanted to have a life there, create a life there. But I had some married friends in Modi'in. I had one in Ramat Beit Shemesh even. And I would go once in a while to those friends just for a little break. But for the most part, I stayed and I made meals. Wait, so then you met your wife like right up the bat? No, uh, we were set up a few months after I got here, but then we weren't friends afterwards. It was just one date and out. We knew who each other were. Like, I didn't forget when we were, we would show up at an event together here and there. But Karen uh, stayed more on the outskirts of the scene. I was more in the center of the scene at that point. Um, so once in a while, I remember once her roommate got engaged and married and she wanted 10 men for a Sheva Bracho. So she called me, oh, can you make it the 10th? Can you be the 10th person and things like that? So we were a little bit, but we became friends through, uh, through Facebook. Oh, wow. So Facebook really got you guys together. Yeah, it was kind of a, well, everything is of a shared story. I'll tell it to you quickly. Yeah. If I can remember, it's a while ago already. So what happened was is that not, I, I'm not so tech savvy. So my friend made a group to help people find meals uh, in, in Katama. But in, I think it was 2009. He went back to America, and since the group already had a number of people in it, I used the group that summer already left in like uh, June to make Sudashli sheets. So the next spring, I think it was in May, Karen, my wife, messages me, can you find me a meal for Shabbos? I'm like, this meal, this is a group for, uh, for Sudashli sheet, but I didn't know how to change the name. So it still said Shabbat meals. So I'm like, just come, just come to a meal. I'll, I'll take you to a meal, whatever. You know, I was a big outgoing social guy. Through that, we became friends and we started hanging out a little bit more. Wow. So how old were you guys when you got married or how old were you? 
Well, obviously, from that point in May, there was a lot of bullshit back and forth. She was trying to run it. I was trying to pass my driving test. And for whatever reason, I got it in my head that I should drive a stick shift. And she had a stick shift, so she helped me do some lessons. And then she wanted to do a half marathon, and I was a good runner. So she asked me to help uh, Demita do some runs together. So we became friendly wow. over the next few months. And then, uh, and then when I realized that she really didn't have too many guy friends, as much as she was modern orthodox, I figured that she was probably waiting for me to ask her out. So luckily I stepped <laughs> up. Wow. So, and then when you asked her out, she was like, good thing you finally asked. She said, no, she said, I actually have a date tomorrow that I, uh, that I had arranged with somebody on a blind date, but don't worry, I'll go out with you after. <laughs> actually, that's what happened when my parents were dating. She said, actually, if you hadn't asked soon, I would have had to ask you, but I'm glad you did. Oh, that's so cute. Karen is outgoing. So you went from being very shy to being outgoing. Well, that was the thing. I was always outgoing in my personality. I was just a bit anxious, let's say, more than a bit. Got it. And and Karen basically brought out your personality more. No, by then I by then I was already very outgoing. But inside, you know, I still didn't have so much confidence. Uh, at least in terms of my work, was still floundering. It's only now that it's much more stable, and uh, uh-huh. not now the last few years, and um, yeah. So I was already outgoing, but I was still single, you know. I still wanted to get married. And it also hurts your self-esteem. If it's something that you want to accomplish, that's very important. And you don't. For sure, 100%. So you, okay, so you made Aliyah, you said, in 2006, and you dated her in 2009? It was the uh, beginning of 2011. Oh, wow. Okay. Beginning of 2011. And we got married in July of 2011. So I was uh, just 38. She was 34. Wow. And Almost um, 35, yeah. What was that what was your wedding like? Like getting married older? Did did you was it typical or was it anything but typical? Like was it what you imagined your wedding to be if you would have gotten married at 23 or did anything change because you were older? No, it, 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 in the end it was it was probably pretty typical. You know, the reaction I got, let's say that when I got engaged at that at that age, the reaction I got was much stronger, let's say, from my friends who had been married for 15 years already, right? They were like, wow, yeah. we're shocked. I can't believe it. There was one friend of mine who said, I fell off my rocker. And Karen was like so insulted for me. Like, what do you mean? Why do you fall off my rocker? Why are you so surprised? What's wrong with this guy that I just got engaged to that you fell off your rocker? Oh, man. But my single friends took a much more stride. They were, a lot of them were still were still single at the time. Luckily, it's interesting. My New York friends did get married for the most part. A lot of the guys in Katamon, unfortunately, are still single. Some did, but a lot of those guys tend to be single. Like the New York guys somehow pulled it off. Wow. So for the most part. you, I'm going to ask this very bluntly. <laughs> I mean, I hope it's okay Go to ahead, ask. Go ahead, you can ask. I don't have to answer. Right. But what, what do you think makes people not get married at a younger age? What What do you think pre- like prevents people from finding their best shirts at a younger age? Right. That's a great question, and uh, there are different answers to it. Uh, I think the the most most common, hear what other people have said, and then I'll tell you what I think. Basically, some people will say, and there's definitely truth to it, that uh, that's because people have issues, right? They have issues from their childhood that they need to deal with. Married people also have issues to deal with. But the issues from the people who are single can be, tend to be, could be a little bit, stronger, a little bit harder to overcome. It's definitely, 
there's definitely some truth. Uh, there's definitely some truth to that. There's also sometimes just at the beginning, like with me, sometimes just you get, you start with a few failures and they kind of feed on themselves. Like had you maybe had a success at the beginning, who knows? You would have been fine. Great. You would have been able to get married younger. I hear that. Do you, today, do you wish that you got married younger or are you happy with how things turned out? Uh, that's, a, that's an interesting, that's a good question. It really, it depends on, on where you start, right? If you talk to me as a 35-year-old, amazing. Amazing the way things are right now. You talk to me as a 25-year-old, you know, only frustration is that these kids are so young. And my friends joke about how, yeah, my youngest turned 15 the other day. <laughs> and some of them have kids, let's say, between the age of 15 and 25. It's totally normal. If they got married at 23, 24. So I have plenty of energy, luckily, because of my job and my lifestyle. For the kids, I don't have any issue with that. But uh, it would be nice to have a little bit more freedom, independence, time, things like that, for sure. But the thing is, it's like this. I look at it like this. And again, I don't know. You know, you try to have a lot of faith in Hashem that everything worked out for the best as much as possible. But if I had gotten married at 22, 23, 24, I think for me personally, it would have been too early, too young. I wouldn't have been that mature enough. And you feel like you got married at the right time. No, in my late 20s and early 30s, I think I was more mature and maybe it would have helped my career take off a little faster to have that stability had I been able to get married in that in that time and to have older kids now. So on some level, that might have been better. I think Karen feels similarly. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, uh, very happy the way it worked out because they scare, you know, they call a couple to Karen, they scare you, you know, 35 years old. Oh, you're high-risk pregnancy already. By the time she got pregnant with the first child, she was already 36. So they were like, oh, high risk, high risk. Wow. Just because you're 36, what is it? You're healthy and you take care of yourself. You're 36, you're not 46. But thank God, For things sure. worked out. <laughs> and now you have four beautiful kids. Yeah, we got four kids about two years apart. Wow. The first gap is a year and a half, and then the next gap's are two years exactly. Wow, incredible. So her last pregnancy was at 42. 42. She gave birth just before 43. Wow. Yeah. And in Israel... So already people are giving birth. She sees them in the hospital older than her. So that also gave her some comfort as well. That's, that's yeah. awesome. Having the 10th, 9th. So um, I know that you were in the documentary. To me, the guy who put it together actually got married two weeks ago. Wow, Mazaltov. Age 45. Wow, Mazaltov. So can you tell a little bit about this documentary? I don't even know the name of it, but when we were watching it, we found it fascinating. So if you can tell a little bit about it, that would be amazing. So there's this this interesting guy. He, he he went to like some Haredi high school, but ended up in YU. Don't know his whole background, but he's a very outspoken guy. Also did smicha, also became a teacher in day school as a single guy. He was a successful teacher as far as I know. I wasn't that friendly with him then. But he had a column in the Jewish press um, about um, all the problems in the Shidduch scene. Unfortunately for him is that he ended up being single all these years. He ended up coming to Katamon. We connected both of us single in the 2007, 8, 9 time period. And in 2000, I don't know if it was 16 or 17, somewhere around there, he says, I'm going to do this documentary. There's too much focus on the pain of singles from the female side. How about the men's side? And he had trouble finding men that wanted to speak out. You know, there's a, I can't think of the right word now, but men don't always like to talk about their... Uh, the mushy gushy stuff as much as women do. Let's it's just say. a stigma. So he found these, uh, yeah, stigma. Uh, you know what I mean. Yeah. So he found these guys and they were dropping out on him. At first he had trouble finding guys. Then they dropped out on him. So he's like, listen, 
I really need another guy in the film. You got married later. You only married a few years. You can join it. You can be one of my four people. So I ended up being one of his four people. And out of four of us, only one was a single guy. The other two were divorced. They were single at the time. Oh, wow. They were single at the time, but they had been married. I don't know for how many years. Got it. Interesting. Very interesting characters. One guy is still one guy is still single. Great guy. David, David Kalimnik. Love him. Very close friend of mine. Fantastic guy. So I came out well in that documentary because I was already married. <laughs> it was a lot easier. There's a lot less pain. <laughs> I hear you. Do, do you feel that that pain has healed over time? Or do you still think back to that pain and ever really feel it now? Uh, thank God I would say that I barely ever feel the pain. I have four little kids to chase around and I have work to do and a wife and a busy life. Thank God. And thank God there's not much time to think about it and there's not much time to feel it. You kind of just going forward. Wow. And, uh, you know, I'm in a much, much healthier environment and that helps to be in a healthier place. That's incredible. I don't think about it so much. So you and Karen got married in 2011, and you lived in Kajimum for how many years after getting married? We lived there for about three and a half years until the beginning of 2015. At that point, we uh, I, I suggested to Karen a year or so after we got married that I said, you know, I have smicha. Now I'm finally married. They, they, the doors, if I didn't want to be a teacher in the day school, which is also weird to be a single teacher into my late 30s, let's say, but in your mid-20s, it's, it's kind of normal. I said, now that I have smicha, and I didn't have a great business at the time. That's an understatement. I said, why don't we see if we can go be a couple, be a rabbi and Rebbitzin couple somewhere in the world? She said, oh, that's a fantastic idea. Because she, as much as he likes to work, doesn't have like this big client list. She's not a lawyer or a doctor. She has a nice job, but she was also happy to do it. Long story short, we ended up uh, going to Gibraltar for a year and a half in wow. 2015. February 2015 until the summer of 2016. And we, we lived there and worked there as there had been a couple helping this family convert to Judaism and doing other tasks in the community, but mainly the conversion. So how was that? I loved it. It was very uh, hard for Karen, even though it was more her culture. Gibraltar is part of the United Kingdom, which she's from, but it is very Gateshead, very right-wing, very Haredi, oh. very women-in-the-house kind of thing. I she's hear. a Bravadist girl that wasn't... The, wasn't the fit for her, but she toler- tolerated it at least for the time. And and then and then uh, by that point, uh, my in-laws had made Aliyah from London, and they were living in Beit Shemesh. So we came back. We came to Beit Shemesh in 2016. And you lived in your mom, Beit Shemesh or Beit Shemesh? We lived in Beit Shemesh until 2022. We lived in a small apartment that was good for two kids when we came. But by the time we had four, we needed a bigger place. They don't have many rentals there. And we were tempted by the new neighborhood of the Beit Shemir and the new apartments and the bigger space. And here we are. So, what is one way that you feel that the world could be a little bit of a less judgmental place? That's a good question. The first thing that comes to mind is that we could, you know, swap clothes for a few days. You know, maybe we could we could, we could wear clothes of other people and they could wear our clothes. Like black hats so and baseball caps? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we could mix it up so we don't judge uh, by the externals because it's very hard not to judge by the externals. Another way is obviously to get is to is is to get to know people, is to get to know people and not judge them just by looking at them and hearing what they have to say. Great. In sure. our street, it's it's hard. It's hard. We had a lot of we had a lot of arguments and fights on Friday night here. Luckily, they've calmed down. Yelling, screaming matches, 
But usually when you get to know somebody, there's certain people that you get to know them and you got to keep your distance. But many people, I ended up during Corona, go back to the davening with a Haredi Shtiblach and I got to know a lot of great, great people there. That's incredible. They had such a nice community, such a nice community. And I would be like, Something's not working in my apartment. I told the guy, I said, no, we have a guy. We have a fix-it guy here. We have this guy. We have that guy. Everything, you know, they were very nice over there. Wow. So the last question that I have for you, Avi, is do you have a favorite pasuk, a favorite quote, something that really motivates you, um, inspires you on a daily basis that keeps you going? That's interesting. You know, the first thought that comes to mind is nothing really comes to mind. And then the second thought is a famous song from the 80s. You know, the Jewish songs, they pick good psukim. And we say it in the davening every day. Baruch HaGever, Hashem, Hashem, Right? Yeah. Especially this, this has been a very difficult decade, whether it be Corona or the war that we're in. And I like to remind myself that at the end of the day, we can only rely on Hashem. And that if we do, he's going to come through. Can you translate Baruch HaGever? Oh, uh, Baruch is blessed. Gever is a man. Yeah. But we can say a, a human. <laughs> that's someone who trusts Hashem. And then the second part is just as important. Vahaya Hashem. And then Hashem, Miftacho, right, will trust him. In other words, I at least make it believes that he's going to come through. He's going to be there. Hashem will be there for that person who trusts in him. It's going to be Beautiful. a two-way street. Beautiful. So, and last, I guess the last question, I knew that, I know that we said two more, but <laughs> I just wanted to finish it off with, uh, do you have one last message for the podcast, for the audience? What is one thing that you want people to know that you feel really sums up what you uh, spoke about in this podcast? Right, now I'm glad you asked that question because that one I had, it was actually a single guy in shul yesterday in his 30s. And I remember the main message, uh, everything starts with this, whether you're single, trying to have children, trying to have a job, whatever it is, everything starts with, with, with the hope, right? That somehow, some way, you have to keep that hope inside. You can't give up totally. There are going to be days when we give up, moments when we give up, and then we have to get back on the next day and, and have some hope. And that was a message that this uh, counselor, whatever social worker guy in the, in the States, his name is Shai Ostrov, very, very powerful uh, mentor of mine, would always say, he says, listen, we're going to help you get married, but we're going to start with hope. And he had me do hope meditations or writing down sentences that if you have hope, then there's a way. Wow. Yeah, if there's a will, there's a way. And if there's hope, there's a way. We just got to find the way. Because you lose hope, right. But you have to also keep the hope. If you keep the hope, then you'll find a way. So, um, Avi, I want you to we like to believe plug that. yourself for one second and tell people that if they want to get massages. Yeah, so uh, when it comes to uh, massage, um, I have a clinic that I work out of in, in, in Ramah Aleph. I have hours there Wednesday afternoon. Um, other, other than that, I try to fit people in. The massage is the deep tissue for pain relief. And the personal training is not uh, is not to bulk up and become Arnold Schwarzenegger. You can go to other trainers for that. I work with uh, people who are at least mostly 40 years old. And we work a lot of flexibility and a lot of cardio. And we mix in the weights just to keep the toning. And we try to uh, 
focus on living a long life, healthy, with your body intact. Awesome. And you work with men and women or just men? So when it comes to personal training, uh, luckily, I, maybe it's a blessing here that I'm here on my page. I work with men and couples. Oh, wow. So sometimes sometimes the, uh, the couple will, will, will do the session together. Uh, it works out nicely for them. They can save a little, it's like a two for one kind of deal. And they can do it together. They push each other. And I have a few few people that we do it together like that. And massage? Just the men. Massage, uh, it's so far, one-on-one, it's just it's just the men. Got it. I have a chair massage business for 11 years. I remember Sarah where people come in the mall and then I do the women, but they're fully clothed. So that's the, that's kind of the compromises and the decisions and, that I feel secure with and with. Very neat. And then, so what is your, how can people reach out to you if they want to talk to you about anything on the podcast or if they want to be in touch about a massage or physical training, stuff like that? Right, exactly. So as much as I was supposed to put up a website, I just have my Facebook page. Otherwise, I guess you get in touch with me on email, WhatsApp, phone number, whatever it is through groups on Facebook. So is, is there an email address maybe that you want to give? Sure. You can, it's, it's my name with a dot in the middle, avi.dzik at gmail. Amazing. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Avi, for coming on, talking with us. And uh, yeah, I'm excited for the world to hear your voice and hear your story. Yes, I hope it was worthwhile. I'm sure it was interesting for you. I hope it was Thank worthwhile you. and interesting for others as well. Thank you. Thank you. All the best. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Anything But Traditional. I truly enjoyed having my neighbor, Avi Dizagan, and getting to know him a bit more. It's really important to understand the struggles that people who are single are going through. It's not easy to be an older single. It's not easy to not be married when a lot of your friends are. Having to pivot communities and new life in those communities. So I really appreciate Avi coming on, sharing his story, and making us think about how to treat individuals that are still single in the Orthodox Jewish community a bit better, in the truest way possible. There's a lot to unpack here as always, so please head over to Tales of Tomorrow on Instagram to do so, and make sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you want to talk about ad opportunities or sponsorships, feel free to reach out. There's a lot that we can do together. There's ads for telling about your business, sponsorship opportunities for dedications. Maybe it's a yard site or a birthday or an anniversary. So feel free to reach out about sponsorship and ad opportunities. And I'd love to talk to you. All the best. Until next time.